Balpin, Kim Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio is a towering figure in the field of sabermetrics. Began his work in said field as a research assistant for Bill James and then continued it as a writer for ESPN, where, relative to the lifespan of the internet, he worked roughly forever. He's most recently the author of a new book called Powerball. It is Rob Nyer. Rob Nyer is the guest on this edition of the program. In what follows, we discuss Nyer's book and also not Nyer's book. Uh, as for that book uh, itself, it owes some debt of gratitude to Dan Okrent's Nine Innings. Dan Okrent's Nine Innings, a text that uses a Brewers-Orioles game from June of 1982 as an entree into a number of meditations on larger issues in the sport at that time. Uh, in Nyer's text, the game in question is played not in 1982, but rather in 2017, September 8th, 2017 specifically. It features both the Oakland A's and eventual world champion Houston Astros. Uh, like Okrent, Nair uses the contest to explore themes in baseball. Unlike Okrent, those themes are different. Unlike Okrent's themes, the themes in this book are different. They're different themes. They're different themes. Apart from that, uh, we discuss, uh, in no particular order, the human mind's difficulty in comprehending probability, uh, the St. John's Bridge in Portland, Oregon, and the efficacy of movie ratings. I also read passages from assorted texts authored by Nair and ask him to identify the text in which those passages appear. He's okay at it. He's okay at it. Finally retreated to Nair's reaction when I inform him that Fangraph's audio does not validate for parking. <sighs> really? Disappointed is how Rob Nair is in that particular instance. We'll get to that conversation with Rob Nair momentarily, but first, it is both my pleasure and also my professional obligation to announce that Fangraphs memberships exist for a reasonable sum. Readers of Fangraphs.com can support the great work that appears in those electronic pages and for a slightly less reasonable sum, not unreasonable, but slightly less reasonable, uh, readers can acquire what is known as an ad-free membership, which allows one to browse Fangraphs.com without the burden banner ads, not only facilitating faster loading speeds, but also liberating one from the tyranny and distortive effects of advertising. You always hear about advertising and how it's not only tyrannical, uh, but that it has all these distortive effects. Well, this ad-free membership is one way to eradicate both in one fell swoop. Uh, what do I say? How do uh, uh, Fangraphs membership and ad-free membership? That's what I want to say. Fangraphs membership and ad-free membership available only at Fangraphs.com. By going to that URL, Fangraphs.com, and then uh, clicking around uh, something a bit, something a little bit more than indiscriminately, with a sense of purpose, a little bit of a sense of purpose, I guess. Uh, with that advertisement now complete, let us move on to our conversation. Over, what is it? It is Fangraphs Audio. Who does it feature? A towering figure in sabermetrics, Rob Nyer. And when does it begin? Right now. questions for you and the first one i ask you actually uh has nothing to do with anything really it's just that i need to ask someone who's older than me this question and you qualify which is have you ever heard the song mac the knife <laughs> yes are you familiar with it <laughs> pretty familiar yes you are pretty familiar because i did not i was so i'll tell you i became familiar with the song mac the knife through mcdonald's marketing campaign known as mac tonight yes i remember that campaign Yes, it was a character with a half-moon face. That is correct. And uh, we had this sort of jolly cartoon animatronic character who was singing this song about how you should eat these hamburgers, right? Yes. But only recently, like in the last day or two, have I revisited the actual song, Mac the Knife, and it's about, like, it's about a murderer. Yes. That's not jolly at all. No. Okay. Well, the hamburglar, is burglary jolly? Not really. It's yeah, no, that's not a violent crime, though. Correct, not violent. Yeah, but it, you know, it sounds like uh, it sounds like you you qualify to be governor of Florida with that sort of logic. <laughs> McDonald's, uh, they have pushed the boundaries uh, on child friendly characters over the years. That's true. So my sense was, yeah. So I was wondering a couple things about it. First of all, it's I think it's weird that McDonald's used that as their marketing campaign. They kind of re relied on the fact that no one had listened to the words. I guess, or remembered the words to Mac the Knife. About yes. a murderer. About a murderer who stabs people. Yes. Kind of like how people don't know, don't know the words to Born in the USA. There are many songs, right, that yeah. uh, are, are anthemic. And, I mean, we, what about YMCA? 
There's a classic case. Right. I actually, to be honest with you, I don't really know what YMCA is. I assume it has to do something with um, with kissing people who are the same <laughs> gender as you. Is that right? I think so. Yes. I think okay. I, I didn't really understand it when the song was popular. Mm-hmm. Later, it was explained to me. Okay. Lola, too, perhaps. Similar situation. Sure. How about yeah. uh, there's a famous uh, Big Star song that's basically about, uh, you know, relations with a young, with a teenager. Hmm. Anyway, so the I list think goes on. Much, yeah, but with regard to Mac the Knife in particular, popularized by Bobby Darren, I think, true? That, I believe that's true. Is that the version with which you're most familiar? It's the only version I know about. Okay. Popularized by him, but not written by him, or even written by, you know, like some sort of Hollywood type who's behind the scenes. Do you know where Mac the Knife first appeared as a song? I do not. I have no knowledge. First appeared in Bertolt Brecht's play, Three Penny Opera. Yes, I did know that. Oh, you did? Okay. Yep, I just forgot. And I guess what? I've never seen Three Penny Opera, but or read it, but is there is there a character named McKeith in it? I have never seen it. Okay. We we now have exhausted the limits of my knowledge of Mac the Knife. All right. Well, I was wondering. I guess I was just curious, because it's a song about a killer. He goes around. He has a knife, I guess. And he kills, I can't tell if he kills sort of for sport or if he's part of some sort of uh, organized crime ring. Do you have a sense of that? I do not. Okay. All right. I just wanted to, I'm going to have to go to to some other sources. (laughs) There's also a famous version you should know uh, by Ella Fitzgerald, recorded live in Berlin, Uh uh, where she forgets one of the verses. And she kind of scats her way through it, and she won a Grammy for it. Why didn't they choose a different one to release as a record? I don't know, but apparently it's beloved. Huh, okay. I'm not a this big version. I, I probably I would to not. It, today. it would not be beloved by me. In fact, I think scatting should be outlawed. Not a fan. <laughs> so those, you're actually saying two things. What you're doing is, 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 is a mistake that many people make, which is you are elevating your personal biases to the level of policy. <laughs> that's one of the, that's one of the well, flaws one, many people. One can fantasize about being king, can't one? Yeah, I guess one can. It sounds it appears to be what you're doing. <laughs> Do you think, would you be a, uh, uh, a benevolent king or dictator? I mean, probably not everyone would think so. I, I would be benevolent, absolutely. I would also mm-hmm. issue the occasional irrational decrees but i wouldn't they wouldn't hurt anyone they would just be uh dictatorial you know oh you'd you'd crush mel torme's career it sounds like with this no no scatting policy he could actually sing yeah what about scatman john i don't know who that is i've heard of scatman carruthers i don't know who that is oh he's the hero in uh the shining whoa wait who is the hero of the shining he is at the end is he the no i wait let's revisit the end of the shining okay uh, Jack Nicholson stuck in a labyrinth sort yep. of thing. And the, I think the hero is the labyrinth. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait. Is the, is the one, is Scatman Carruthers, is it the African-American fellow who is like a little bit scary? Well, he's only scary because we don't know him well enough. At the end, oh, okay. we find out that he's not scary. And he actually, I believe, as I recall, it's been some years, I believe he, he saves uh, our... our uh, the child and the child and her mother. Yes. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, I'm glad we've established all that. But anyway, this was mostly about Mac the knife, and I needed uh, information from someone who I, you weren't really there. I, I think uh, Bobby Darren. I think his basically his entire career and life predates you. Uh, that might be true. Not his yeah. not his life, right? He was. He, uh, he was, died young. It was, so he was played by um, in the movies by um, oh gosh the actor from. Uh, played kaiser solze who's the actor who played kaiser solze kevin spacey kevin spacey played bobby darren i believe about when he was about 20 years older than than darren was when he died oh okay um, yeah and uh, does all the singing himself i never saw the movie it sounded like a ridiculous exercise to me but um it's it's also um it's an interesting way to tarnish bobby darren's legacy isn't it <laughs> well, to, have was, a, to have a disgraced actor this was some years ago yeah i know but that but that's unfortunate for bobby darren's his uh well the good his, news is nobody saw the movie okay all right that's yeah that's good news i guess yes in the end it becomes good news he died in 73 bobby oh, okay. darren so i was seven years old yeah his his name uh i'll have you know was not bobby darren that does not surprise me walden robert casato nice yeah so walden. there you are 
Somebody's got Wikipedia open on their computer right now. Yeah, he knew he was going to die young. Did you know that? How do you know? He knew he was, because uh, he, he long suspected it. Did he have some sort of uh, condition that he knew about, or did he just guess? He had a uh, challenging childhood, and I think it made him feel um, vulnerable. Oh, okay. You know, Mickey Mantle always thought that he was going to die young, and he didn't particularly, but to the degree that he did, it was because he abused himself. That was a self-fulfilling prophecy to some degree. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Prophecies have a way of doing that, don't they? Just read, <laughs> just read any, any of the old <laughs> Greek texts. Okay, here's another experiment. Here's another question for you. I'm going to read some words to you, Nyart. Is this, is, is, are you comfortable with this arrangement? I'm going to read you some words and I'm going to ask you who authored them. Yes. Does that, are you comfortable with that arrangement? The only thing I'm uncomfortable with is the likelihood that I'm going to blow the answers, but go ahead. Oh, no, don't worry. This is a, this is a, this, this whole program is a testament to failure. <laughs> okay. I have been following baseball somewhat obsessively for 35 years. I've been studying baseball somewhat obsessively for 25 years. I have been writing about baseball somewhat professionally for 20, for 20 years. Does that sound familiar to you? I think... I've been following baseball somewhat obsessively for 35 years, studying for 20 years. When was it years. written? Mm, 2011, maybe. That sounds like something I might have written. Yeah, yeah it does. <laughs> but do you know where you wrote it? 2011. Uh, yeah. No, I do not. You wrote this as the foreword for Craig Robinson's Flip Flop Fly Ball. Of course. It's a book of graphics. Craig Robinson's Flip Flop Fly Ball. Do you recall that text? I do recall. It's an excellent, outstanding book. Craig, uh, I miss Craig's baseball work. He hasn't done that in quite some time, but uh, but I miss it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you wrote that. I, and uh, that book has a, a special place in my heart for two reasons. Uh, one, because like you, I like Craig Robinson quite a bit. Um, and actually got to spend some time with him in Mexico City, where he was a very capable host. He didn't, we didn't, uh, my wife and I did not actually stay with him, but um, he, to he toured us around the city. And even though we didn't necessarily expect him to see him at all. So that was very helpful. And also, let me tell you about this book. Another thing it does is it uh, provides a flat surface on which the box fan in uh, my room, in my wife's room, <laughs> sits. We put it on a hamper, and then we put, we put the book on a hamper, and then we put the box fan on the book. So it serves two purposes, you well, see. Well, the book's only about a half an inch thick. I'm surprised, that, uh, I'm surprised that the book is thick enough to serve any utility. I, I, I might use a towel to sort of for padding, but I wouldn't have thought to use a book. No, but it, but but the, the the towel will create an un, an uneven surface. Right. Yeah. So so the book is not because you need to raise the fan; it's because you need a, a a flat surface for the fan to rest on. Yeah, I understand. Yeah. Okay. I can visualize it now in my mind's I'm gonna, eye. I'm going to read a couple other passages to you during the course of this conversation. Okay. They will all be written by you. Oh, that makes it easier. But I won't tell you where they were written. Okay. It's your job to identify them. Got it. Uh, let me ask you another thing. What have you been doing recently? <laughs> <laughs> How recently? Well, let's see. The last time I saw you, I think was at a winter meetings, maybe just in passing. Does that yep. sound right? Yep. Here's the thing. I don't think I'm. I don't think I'm revealing a surprise ending when I say that you've not only written but also managed to have published a, a book. Uh, yes, that is true. As of October 9th, that will be officially the case. That will be officially the case, right? It will. That will be when it's available. Available to uh, to all people to purchase. Yes. So you've been writing a book. Obviously, asking you about the book is a part of what's going to happen here. But so yeah, let's actually do that because you wrote a book, Rob. You wrote a whole book. Yep, eighty five thousand words worth. Hmm. Words worth. That's how um certain poet got his name. What? Uh, <laughs> tell us about the book. Tell us about the tell tell me about the book. Tell me why. Tell me why you wrote it. I have a number of answers for that question, as I suspect most people do. I'm not one of those people, you know, see, I had to write the book. I, I was just, you know, I couldn't not write it. I, I, that's not really me. I write uh, because it's my my vocation. And uh, at least when someone will, will allow me to allow that to be my vocation. And this book was not something I ever thought about writing. All my other books were, or almost all of them, were things that I conceived. They weren't necessarily original ideas, but 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 they were 
ultimately my ideas. This one was not. I was a big fan of a book called Nine Innings written by Dan Okrand back in the early 80s. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, later I got to meet Dan and spend some time with him. And I'm a huge fan of his work since then. Uh, his book, His book's about, in my opinion, his book's about Rockefeller Center and Prohibition are both masterpieces. So I'm a huge fan uh, and have been since I think probably 1985 or 86 when his book Nine Innings was was published. It never occurred to me to write a book like that, probably because it had already been done. And his is probably the best in the genre, but there are others. Can you explain the sort of uh, conceit, I guess, of, of sure. Nine Innings? The conceit of Nine Innings is that the book takes place in a sense, over the course of a single game, a Brewers-Orioles game in, I believe, 1982. But in the course of those nine innings, Dan uses the events of the game as jumping-off points to discuss all manner of, of, of baseball-related topics. It talks a lot about managing, about the front offices, about labor issues, about... And, you know, and how the players do their jobs as well. I, I mean... I haven't read the book in a while. I didn't want to read it before I wrote mine because I didn't want to be swayed by it or humbled by it. But I read it at least twice, perhaps more times back in in those years. And uh, again, it never occurred to me to write a book like that. But last fall, an editor came to me and he wanted someone to write a book like that, updated for our era. I mean, the, the, the book came out in 85, so... We're now 33 years out. That's a long time, obviously. Oh, it is. So yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> children were born and, and died in that time. That's how many years that is. Yeah. Uh, well, unfortunate children. Yes, the yeah. unfortunate children. Other um, other people who were alive when the book was published have died in the meantime. Right. Other people who were alive when the book was published are still alive. That's for true. Me, so me, really... for example. So, <laughs> the, so that was the – so this was not a book that I thought about doing. It was some some – it came to me and uh, it almost never happens like this in publishing I, where where there's an idea and then it's basically it's done quickly. I, I've pitched books before, some of which sold after a few weeks or months, some of which haven't. And, and recently, the, the, my book ideas have not sold and, and those were processes. The not selling process would take some weeks or actually months if you consider the time I put into uh, the proposals and outlines and sample chapters, that sort of thing. But this came together almost immediately. It was basically one phone call and or one or two phone calls and an outline of what I wanted to write about in this book. And then it was basically finished. So I felt very fortunate. The two big differences between my book and, and Dan's book are, for one thing, we're different, different sorts of writers. And for another, Dan spent literally... I think five years working on his book. I had about five months. So there are different sorts of books. Dan's book was much more reported than my book. I did some reporting. I spoke to probably 40 people for the book, roughly, including a dozen or more players in the game that I wrote about. But they are different sorts of books. Mine is more a more personal book than Dan's was. But I, I hope that um, you know there, there is a legacy there of books that are attempt to tell a larger story about baseball through the lens of a single game. There are probably there must be at least a dozen of those since the fifties, and uh, I just wanted to be a part of that legacy. So Okrent's book, as you say, is a sort of um, chronicle of a game and that uses the, the the game as a what as an entree into larger conversations about about the sport, etc. It looks like it's, that's a game between the Brewers and Orioles. Uh, so far as you know, did those two teams have um, any special relevance or or is it uh, somewhat chosen randomly? You know, I don't, I've seen, I've heard Dan talk about why he chose those teams. Um, I don't remember the answer. Um, okay. It was a process. I think he went to a lot of games and just wound up choosing that one for whatever reason. It wasn't he, that he just happened to show up at the ballpark that day. I think he was there for a number of games and it just that wound up being the one that he featured. You know, the Orioles and the Brewers were certainly two of the more interesting teams at that time. For one thing, you can't go wrong writing about Earl Weaver. 
And the Orioles organization, the front office was tremendously talented. A lot of really smart people in the front office with a great history since the late 60s. They probably won more games between 1969 and 1982 than, than anybody in baseball. I probably be them or the Dodgers and probably the Orioles. So I think he wanted that a, a really strong organization and he got that with the Orioles and the Brewers were up and comers and, you know, it sort of had the, Side benefit of he, you know, for historians, he got to write about Bud Selig, who owned the, the Brewers at that time. Um, and Dan has some great stories about Bud Selig post-publication. Uh, there's a podcast that Justin McGuire does, Baseball by the Book, which I'm sure you're familiar with. And he had Dan on to talk about nine innings, and Dan told some great stories about it. And so... Uh, for you, well, first of all, I mean, this I've probably delayed this too long, but the book is called Powerball. That's that's the book. But what is uh, what is the relevance for you of the game? What is the game in question? What is the relevance for you? Well, we we I I wanted to find a game that basically contained all the big stories in baseball these days, mm -hmm. or at least most of them, something emblematic of the game. And what I found when looking for that perfect game is that. Of course, it doesn't exist, right? Like nothing else. There's nothing else that, that and you'll never find something that's perfect for you, for your purposes. You're all, there are always going to be trade-offs. And the, the biggest problem with the game that we wound up using was that there weren't enough strikeouts. Um, I wanted a game with a lot of strikeouts because obviously that's, that's a, such a huge part of the game now. And there just weren't that many in this game. But it had everything else we wanted. It had two really interesting teams, the Astros and A's. Had a lot of home runs. And it also had a, some dramatic turns. We, I relied on fan graphs, uh, win expectancy graphs for, to, to, to look for games that had a lot of dramatic turns. And, and this one certainly had it. So uh, to answer your question, the game was September 8th, last September 8th, and, mm -hmm. uh, the Astros visiting the athletics. Oh, okay. Oh, so, so this game is, uh, now we're saying this one is, uh, to some degree emblematic. So wait, <laughs> so you actually had, you almost worked backwards in a sense to find, to find your game, which is yes. maybe, as you know, maybe to some degree, this is what Okrant did as well. He didn't, he didn't just have a eureka moment while well, sitting in the stands. Well, to some degree, it, 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 no, it was different in the sense that I think Okrant just went to a whole series in Milwaukee is my memory. And then mm -hmm. chose the one, the game in that series that he wanted to feature. I don't think he just showed up at the ballpark one day and said, okay, no matter what happens, this is it. But he did go to the ballpark and then choose among those. I didn't have time to do that. Uh, I, I thought that's what my editor was going to want me to do when we talked about the book. But it turned out that just timetable-wise, it wasn't practical. What I could, because we didn't decide to, we didn't actually even start discussing this book until I think it was mid-September. So there wasn't a great deal of time to go to a game. Maybe it was early September, but my initial thought was maybe I can go to a, head up to Seattle and see a series and pick one of those games. But what his thinking was, no, it makes more sense to have the whole season to choose from. Mm -hmm. And of course, you could, that's a practical endeavor now because we have so much, A, information about every game. And we also have, thanks to MLB's uh, various media enterprises, I could easily watch the game as many times as, as I wanted and listen to it. I, I listened to, I probably watched the game five or six times and I listened to the home and road radio feeds and TV feeds on, in terms of audio. So I, you know, you, that's something you, that Dan Okren just couldn't have done. Those, those, those weren't available to him. So he had to he pretty much had to be at a game and reporting it. I'm sure he could probably, there may, might have been a, a videotape that he could look at later, but he didn't have the wealth of material that I had available to me. Yeah, this is so, this is interesting. So not, beyond all the other considerations about the kind of, um, a sort of like a analytical, the sort of state of research uh, regarding the game, you actually, uh, it, it also reveals to some degree how the game is consumed at this point as well. Not to say that people don't go to games anymore. They certainly do. And uh, not to say that um, when Okrant was writing that people didn't watch and listen to games, but in some sense you have, um, as you say, you have sort of greater control over the way you are consuming the game and you're able to consume it uh, more robustly, I guess, than he would have been able to. You know, that's absolutely true. And it's one of the things that I didn't actually write about in the book. I, I hope that I touched on it briefly or that it at least comes across to people that 
that this is happening. But that is one of the things, probably one of the, I don't know, half dozen or so topics that uh, could have been in the book, but just weren't because I ran out of time and space. Um, it certainly is, it represents a huge change from the mid eighties when most of the games weren't televised. And obviously there certainly wasn't any way to look up box scores while a game was happening, et cetera, et cetera. So I think I focused, well, I know I focused a lot more on the way the game is played now um, and the way it's analyzed in the front offices than I did on the way it is consumed. But that is certainly a, a great topic. So I'm looking at, speaking of box scores, I'm looking at uh, the box score for this game uh, at Fangraphs. And I mean, it. Uh, as you note, there was uh, some shifting uh, in terms of win expectancy. As you note, that there, there were a bunch of runs scored. What the, if I'm just looking at this box score? Is there anything immediately that I'm going to that's going to uh, present itself emerge that um, I, I suppose now with the degree to which you're familiar with it that uh, that I won't necessarily notice when I'm first looking at it? I don't think so. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's it, there aren't a lot of big surprises aside from the fact that the Astros did blow a big lead and then they blow another lead in the the ninth inning. Uh, it today it probably isn't wouldn't be surprising for people to know that Ken Giles gave up a lead in the ninth inning, but at the time it was pretty surprising because he was coming off a tremendous run and looked like one of the best closers in the majors. Uh, didn't look he didn't look that he didn't look that way in the in the postseason, and he certainly hasn't this season. But I think that, and I, I write about this in the book, not really about related to Giles specifically, because it, when I'm right as I'm writing in the book, he's pitching tremendously, not in the game, but in the season. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do touch on the, the uh, unreliability season to season of, of top relief pitchers. And I think that Ken Giles's recent history is a great uh, example of that. So, uh, you, you, I mean, you mentioned one book to which your own text owes, um, I guess, some, some level of uh, gratitude, debt. I don't know what I mean. To which it in 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 whose debt in which is debt it is anyway the point is that nine innings is a uh, is at some level a model however uh, we also have here a book called powerball uh, which seems to echo faintly with uh, moneyball and the oakland a's are one of the teams involved here so i'm con- uh, i'm curious as to uh, i guess to to what degree it was um that was a conscious decision um and if maybe because the houston astros are noted as being sort of a ruthlessly efficient and analytical in her decision-making under Jeff Lunau, if there is a bit of a uh, passing of the analytical baton here to some degree, not to say that the, uh, that Oakland is very far behind the curve. Um, no, that was absolutely an implicit. I don't think I ever make the case explicitly that there's a passing of the torch because maybe because I'm not very good at being explicit, but I think implicitly, absolutely. You've got the Astros who, as when the game is being played, the Astros, of course, were in first place. And at that time, the A's were in last place. Of course, I had no idea that the A's would play as well this season as they have. So considering that the A's might actually finish ahead of the Astros in 2018, it would seem foolish to now suggest that there was a passing of the torch. But implicitly that is suggested mm-hmm. in, in in the book and the i do spend a bit of time on the their front offices and not a, regarding their accomplishments per se but just in terms of numbers uh, the astros at least if you look at their official front office staff listings they have an immense number of people who are devoted essentially to what we used to call sabermetrics, and now everybody calls analytics for some reason. And the A's, if you look at their front office staff, they had like three people devoted to it. So it did seem like there was a contrast, not just in performance on the field, but also in how they get there. But again, you want to avoid drawing overarching conclusions like that. For one thing, you're probably wrong. And for another, (laughs) you could look really stupid if you are wrong. And I did make some pains to suggest that you can't just look at, say, the last three years and say, oh, look, the the Astros are smarter than the A's. Look how well they've done the last three years, because that ignores the previous three years when the A's actually played really, really well. 
uh, well, well after Moneyball. Uh, the Money right, Ball. and as you as you note too, uh, the future also has a way of making you look stupid. Yes. So if you were to make that point, I suppose too strongly. Well, I mean, reality has a way of upending you, and and as you note here, we here we find the A's. I mean, as of the, as of when we're recording right now, the A's only three games behind the Astros. Right, and I, but I and I will nowhere in the book do I offer even the tiniest hint that the A's are going to be really good anytime soon. So uh-huh. <laughs> um, I didn't hedge my bets at all. I just didn't bend over backwards to say, "Oh, look, that would be." I don't have a great deal of patience for authors or writers who make. You can end the sentence right there. If you want. <laughs> Not completely true. <laughs> Uh, who make sweep, sweeping statements like that. And I, 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 I suspect it wouldn't be all that difficult to find someone somewhere who said, look, the A's are, are dead and the Astros are the future of baseball. I happen to think that it's somewhat true about the Astros, but they're going to have bad seasons down the road sometime too. They're, everybody does. Nobody's immune. No, right. Yeah, there's, a, there's always an end to... Um, I mean, I, there were certainly uh, times during the Yankees' various dynasties where it seemed as though they would last forever I right. you know and yeah i remember growing up uh, as a red sox fan in the 80s and 90s and especially you know when you had those those teams with you know jeter posada etc they seemed as though you know those teams would never they would never ever lose again but you know humans get older teams end up making bad decisions i mean every team at a certain point right regardless of of how wealthy you know how large the payroll or not like they're always tasked with deciding whether to retain the services of of their veterans, you know. Right, and that's going to come up with the Astros as well, and they're going to run into. Let me give you. I'll get. I'll ask you a question. Okay. Here are four numbers that I am pulling from the last decade. See if you can figure out what these numbers represent. Okay. Ninety. Mm-hmm. Sixty-nine. <laughs> 97 <laughs> 71 I think I actually do know what those are No, maybe I don't How recently in, in history are they? The last decade mm. Well, I thought they might be the Red Sox win totals from certain years That is correct Oh, is it? 2011 to 2014 Okay, yeah <laughs> I I have I actually happened to be just looking at that the other day And marveling at how unlikely it was That a team that was so well constructed Could finish last place what, in two out of three years? That is correct. And in the middle, win 97 games. Right. And not, not just 97 games, but also a World Series. Isn't that right? That is correct. Yeah. And you know you know when you become really aware of that is when you start uh, running simula- simulations yes. of seasons. You know, you do like 10,000 or 100,000 and, and you see the, the various possibilities. You start to realize that chance alone um, has a real way of... Um, I guess again, uh, disrupting our expectations. That's right. Uh, I mean, the same yeah. people making the same decisions for the most part with the same sort of processes, and yet wildly different results. Right. That's why it's well. I, I remember having a, a conversation with my father, who um, has, you know has many virtues as a human, but maybe not chief among them is um, his, I guess, familiarity with uh, probability models. Right. And I remember talking with him about you know, looking back at the 2016 presidential election and i think the the projections that you know the final projections published by 538 i forget what the exact numbers were but it was something like was it like something like 75 to 25 uh, in terms of percentages probability of uh, you know winning the electoral college for hillary right. clinton versus trump and sold that to him and he said well they clearly thought they clearly thought or the model clearly thought clinton was going to win but at the same time no, <laughs> because I mean they thought yes, in any given one, the chance was higher that Clinton would win. But it's like, have you ever seen? I don't know. In the eighties, did you ever see Marty Barrett get a base hit? <laughs> and you know, if you watch the Red Sox every day, you probably saw him do it all the time. Right. You know, potentially on a daily basis because you know he hit. I don't know if he was exactly a two fifty hitter. Maybe Spike Owen would be a better example. But the idea would the idea is things that happen twenty five percent of the time happen all the time. That's if, right. If, if the sample sizes are large enough. Yeah, you shouldn't be shocked by any. You shouldn't be shocked by something that happens. The only time I'm ever shocked is when something unlikely or when something happens over and over and over again. That you know, a huge combination of unlikelihoods. There was that number. You know, the Red Sox losing 91 games the year after they won 97 is pretty mm-hmm. shocking. Uh, there was that number. The Rockets in the NBA Finals. I think was it the finals last year or the semifinals. I guess they. 
missed 30 some three pointers in a row and you just it doesn't even make sense that that could even happen right especially for a team that you know whose success was largely right or at least in no small part based it, off of it, doing it, that. It, on some level those things defy belief but then again the fact that they're we actually saw them really happen means we should believe them. Those are the ones that would be hard to take. If I'm if I'm a fan of the Rockets, even though I realize it's statistically possible, it's still difficult to process. And what if someone told you it was going to happen? Wouldn't you think it would? I mean, whether you're a fan of the Rockets or not, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you think no? That's have you seen the Rockets play? They're not going to miss thirty three in a row. <laughs> well, nobody would. Nobody would be dumb enough to say that would happen. Now, if somebody said that's going to happen to some team at some point in the next 100 years or 10 years, I'd say, okay, maybe it will. But you never expect I don't it think it'll happen to day. my team. Yeah. You know, here's, here's another example of the way that probability is uh, very difficult for – at least I can could, I could speak only to my dumb mind. But are you, were you familiar ever with the, the basketball player Andres uh, – I'm saying his name wrong. I'm going to say his name wrong. Andres – I always pronounce it Beedrens. I think it was Biontrich or something. He was no, um, I've never heard of him. He was a Latvian player. Uh, you could take. Are you familiar with DeAndre Jordan? Yes. Okay. Well, well DeAndre Jordan is a, isn't is a good enough example. DeAndre Jordan, his free throw percentage is just under forty five percent. Okay. So in my mind, anytime DeAndre Jordan is is going to take a free throw, he's probably going to miss it. Now that's statistically true, right? Right. But it seems like he never hits free throws. <laughs> right. On the other hand. Watching Nomar Garcia Para in the year 2000 when he hit 372, it felt like he got a hit every time because, and I suppose, I suppose actually we could, this could be a credit to the way the mind works is that relative to the rate at which we've become accustomed, right? Relative to other hitters, he really did get a hit all the time. Right. A 372 average is orders of magnitude better than, than a league average in the majors. Whereas a 45% free throw rate, essentially free throw conversion rate is very low. So maybe we're just good at adjusting for that. But if you just ask me on like a, uh, you know, in absolute terms, what happens more often? DeAndre Jordan hits a free throw or Nomar Garcia Parra in the year 2000 gets a hit. I would say Nomar Garcia Parra gets a hit. That's of course. Brain, uh, and, we're, and we're conditioned too by, by what we, not only what we're seeing, but what we're hearing. All season long, we were told again and again and again that Nomar Garcia Parra is a tremendous hitter and mm-hmm. that he's heading 372 or whatever. I think he was over 400 at one point in the spring. Uh, I remember seeing that on the scoreboard there. It's like Bill James wrote about this a long time ago, and and then Crash Davis references it in Bull Durham, and I quote quote him in the book, talking about how the difference between hitting, between hitting 250 and 300 is basically one hit a week over the course of a season. And as Bill wrote, nobody can see that with their naked eye. You you need the numbers to know, to know how good a baseball player is. You know there are extremes, of course. You probably probably tell the difference between Clayton Kershaw and a scrub starting pitcher over the course of a season, but a hitter maybe not. We need the numbers to know how good these guys are. Right. Yeah, and it's um, no, knowing that there's sort of modesty that's required. I don't know. Maybe it's not modesty. Uh, no, maybe it is modesty. We'll call it modesty for the moment of knowing that you're just unable to detect with your eyes this thing that it's occurring is, uh, I don't know, it's, I, I think it's hard to adopt. But I guess, it's, I guess at some point with a sufficient exposure, you can, you can sort of train yourself to do it. I think so. I, I don't trust myself um, mm-hmm. for the most part. Obviously, I'm subject to cognitive biases too. Everybody is. But to the, to the degree that you can immunize yourself from them, I think it's mostly because you are aware of them. At least that it has to help. And Bill James not only made my career, basically, because he gave, gave me my start and a great deal of support along the way since then, but even before I worked for Bill, reading his books changed the way I looked at the world, not just baseball. And then, of course, reading about cognitive biases, which has been a, a big thing in the last 10 years or so, um, that's contributed. But um, I don't trust myself. I don't trust my opinions. I don't trust other people's opinions unless they've got some data to back it up. But, you know, it's easy not to trust other people. That's natural. But um, I do what I can to not trust myself, too. Okay, here's another passage written by Rob Nyer. I don't know what my parents thought about me when I dropped out of college when I was almost 22, but any objective outsider would have wondered what the hell I was doing with my life. I certainly didn't know. Then Bill James came along. Uh, let's see. Did I write that in that book of essays about Bill? Yeah. Okay. How Bill James How Bill James changed your view of baseball. There it is. 
by colleagues, critics, competitors, and just plain fans. I wonder how many competitors there were. Friendly competitors, maybe. <laughs> Friendly competitors. I read that. Uh, I read that book. Oh, there's Daryl Morey right there. Uh, I read that book in uh, Portland at uh, Laurelhurst Park. Nice. The whole thing? Yeah. That was your reading spot, or did you do it all in one sitting? Mm, probably neither. <laughs> uh, that's just this is I remember reading it. Laurel Got Hurst it. Park oh, a I see. Bit. Okay. A nice park, right? Yeah. Yeah. Great park. Yeah. 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 That's what I thought too. Who lives here? There. Are you still in Portland, Rob Nyer? I am still in Portland. I've moved. I think I've moved since you left. Um, I live in uh, a neighborhood called St. John's, right where the Willamette and the Columbia Rivers come together. Right, and near the mighty St. John's Bridge, too. I think that is correct. Uh, yeah, it's. I'm. I'm. Uh, I think I'm one mile from the from the bridge, and I drive over it literally every day. Has St. John's changed a lot in the last decade? Well, yes, it has. I don't know to what extent because I, I've been here for five years, but. There's been a great deal of new construction in the last five years. Um, it's still got its gritty, small-town feel, but it certainly has a lot more upscale apartments than it had when, when we moved here. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Let's see. I went there one time because I believe that there is... Uh, well, it was not for my sake, uh, but there's a good Photoshop slash camera... Yep, still there. Re ...retailer. Oh, okay, yep. still there. Still there, yeah. Old, it's an old-school camera, camera store that... I don't know how they do it, but it's big and they have everything and they're still going. Well, I think, yeah, if you're in a city, reasonable enough population and you do one thing well, then you can usually, I mean, people come, what, what was it called? What's the photo store called? I don't remember. Yeah, that's fine. It's a important photo store. Anyway, <laughs> uh, if you do one thing well in a, in a place that has enough people, you find, I mean, you attract, right? And so it sort of becomes a magnet kind of. Yeah, I'm sure they, they get customers from all over the city. It's just, it's, I think it's tougher for businesses like that in St. John's because we're not near anything. We're at the end of the road, basically. So it's a haul. There are people, there are people who have lived in, in, in Portland for many years who have literally never crossed the St. John's Bridge because hmm. unless you are making an effort to be here, there's really no, I mean, you're never going to pass through St. John's or over the St. John's Bridge on your way somewhere. Yeah, it'd be harder. Although I actually, now that you say that, I actually did pass over it on my way to somewhere. <laughs> well, you have to. People have to be on the way to somewhere in order to pass over. Well, it. to St. John's, yes, but the St. John's Bridge doesn't go anywhere except St. John's. But it goes north of the city. What goes north? Uh, let's see. If you're ta if you're taking Route Thirty. Yep. I one time had to do that. Why, where was I going? You, well, if you were going from Portland somewhere, you could take Route 30 to Astoria on the coast, but you'd go under the bridge, not across it. Okay. Wait, I, I know that I went there. I think I did a writers in the schools type of thing at a school at a, at a school in St. Helens, maybe. Okay. Again, you Is would that have a gone under the bridge, not across it. I, would have, I wouldn't have? Nope. Oh, maybe I just went near it. You, yeah, you went, you're right. Well, again, you probably went under it. The Highway 30 travels directly beneath the St. John's Bridge. On I would have had to go out of my way in, a, uh, in order to go over it. What if I'd started? What if I'd started in in the Woodlawn neighborhood? That wouldn't have been your most direct route, but sure, you could have gone that way. What would I have done then? Take just take hop, the on I, hop on I hop on I five and get on four hundred five and then to thirty. Oh yeah, yeah. So there's really so. Unless, what if I lived in University Park? Yes, then you would occasionally have reason to take the St. John's Bridge. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I don't know if it was in St. Helens, though. There's some school up there. And you're right. Now that you say it, I, I remember the St. John's Bridge, but I did not cross it. I think we actually did cross it one time just... Just to do it? Yeah, we probably went up one one direction and came back on 30 or something like that. Yeah, and it's a, uh, it's a beautiful bridge in St. John's. Is Blue Moon Camera and Machine, by the way. Okay. Looks like someone's using... That's the name of the store. Yeah. And Machines. And machine. And machine. Machine, yes. So they just they only have one machine? Yep, one big machine. Takes a half okay. the store. <laughs> and it makes it makes widgets, oddly enough, not anything camera related. Widgets? Yep, widgets. Yeah. Classic design. Yep. Good seller widgets usually. <laughs> <laughs> it's the very basis of capitalism from what I understand. The book. What do you what's your what's your big conclusion, Nair? Big conclusion. Without but uh to such a degree that people still need to buy it. Or, so, uh, or otherwise get it from their library. Boy, I hope it's fun to read. I mean, there really is no, like, there's not, nothing earth-shaking in there. There's some research and, 
And there's some things people maybe missed the first time around. Some good quotes from ba- the baseball players that I talked to. Some history of infield shifting and and various other things. But I, I really think that more than anything, it's just a it's a story. It's a story of a baseball game, and it's supposed to feel like you're sitting next to me at the ballpark. And well, you know, I'm doing all the talking, unfortunately. But well, that's you know, kind of like sitting next to you at the ballpark. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, so yeah. the the idea is that. I'm a fairly educated baseball fan and uh, might have something interesting to say about the sport. Okay. I that sounds reasonable. Let me ask you, um, the Astros, and I don't know if you address this in your text at all or not. The Astros, though, have maybe uh, drawn some attention for some changes they've made in, uh, internally in terms of scouting. I don't know the exact numbers, but I do know that they dismissed a number of scouts, in particular, I think, in the lower levels of the minors and have essentially replaced them with you know, um, track mandate or something like that. Is this something uh, on which you've um, meditated? And do, do you sense it's, uh, is it the future or is it an aberration? I, I think that the future of pro scouting is not bright because the technology can capture so many of the things that scouts would, which isn't to say you're ever not going to want scouts looking at minor league players, because I think you always want that. Um, even the Astros do. Um, and I'm not speaking with any knowledge, just it's a general impression. But certainly there's a, there's less of a need now when you can measure. You don't need a scout to tell you how fast somebody is. It just I mean, The idea that you would is preposterous now because TrackMan tells you exactly how fast a guy is, how fast his first step is, his second step, his third step, his sprint speed, all that. So the need there is just wouldn't be as great objectively, I think. On the other hand, the need for amateur scouts, and there's data for those guys too, but the, but not as much. And there is less known about the personalities and the, the habits of, of amateur players. I did a study just a year or two ago, and there are more scouts employed by teams now than there were 10 or 20 years ago. So it's actually a growth industry. People think scouting is a dying profession. No, the opposite. The people who are doing the scouting might be different. And, they, and where they're doing it might be different, but there are more scouts than ever, and teams are desperate to find to find good, good ones. Yeah, I think it's straight. And, and the realities of scouting sometimes, and maybe this is—I don't know if I'm talking about the present incarnation or the, the that from the recent past—are. Uh, but the realities of scouting sometimes run contrary to our uh, maybe the most romantic notions about it, because our most romantic notions we have this sort of um, scout who by dint of his uh, intuitive powers is able to identify a player who will be great uh, despite not exhibiting any sort of uh, greatness in the present, right? But in reality, like the way scouts have been used a lot is just as sort of um, data collecting machines um, and probably not the most efficient sort, you know? But as you say, like how fast does, does, uh, does a particular player run from home to first? You know, the stopwatch clicking the stopwatch has been an important part of acquiring that data. And for amateur players, as you know, like the sort of um, scout as data collector will always be somewhat necessary. But it, it does seem to make more sense to use to use humans to collect other s- sorts of data, the kind which are not as easily apprehended, you know, by, uh, or, you know, they could not also, the ways where, which a human could not be replaced by a machine, right? Absolutely. Like, so. There's, there, there never will be, that will never happen. It's just it's a matter of degree and where you throw your resources. But teams have so much money. Even if scouts are worth only twenty five percent today, what they were twenty years ago, I don't think that's true. But I have no idea. Maybe it's fifty percent. Maybe it's eighty percent. I don't know. But my point is, even if they were only twenty five percent as valuable as they were twenty years ago, you would still want a bunch of them because you have a these teams are swimming in money nowadays, and b the coin of the realm is information. So even if that information is only a quarter as valuable as it once was, it's still valuable. And you still want as much as you can get. And that's why scouts aren't going anywhere. And frankly, scouts are, I, again, I think it's a, a growth industry. I, I think it's a good time to be a scout, especially if you're amenable to, to new data and uh, new tools and all that stuff. You know, If you're not willing to use an iPad and send that report in, tonight before you go to bed you might be in trouble but Mm -hmm. you know that's always been the case the 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 best scouts have always been the guys who would work harder and keep open minds and and all that stuff so that has what you know one thing that has changed is i think teams are are now actually evaluating scouts systematically which they didn't weren't really able to do before or didn't want to bother 
Um, so I think some scouts have been pushed out who simply weren't performing well. And that's that's should be the case in most performance-based industries. Or I shouldn't say I, I hate it when people say industry when they're talking about baseball. Uh, take that out. I command you Fields? to take that out. Disciplines. Yes, disciplines, uh, endeavors. There are lots of better words than industry. The uh, agreed. I hope that. Well, if that's the case, I hope that um, editing baseball blogs is not considered <laughs> a performance-based endeavor or field. Then, because I do not want, uh, I do not want there to be any. And I think probably most people like they'd probably prefer there not be any objective measures of their success because you've heard of uh, reviews and stars and stuff, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I know the I know those exist. You know those exist. But okay. that's also it's a yeah. I'm aware of that. All right. But the, a lot of times there are other things going on. For example, like I mean, poetry, right? Like most of it is bad. But there's also a lot of um, political advantage in saying certain poems are good versus yes. others. Yep. And that's typically the thing that wins out. And even when the reviewers are writing about them. And I mean, even like I mean, you know, do you think film criticism is an entirely efficient way of even the star system. I don't know. Do you think it, do you think uh, that it does a good job of uh, sorting out the wheat from the chaff? I do not. Uh, yeah, no, I do. I actually do. Okay. Uh, I, I, I think aggregated reviews are highly useful. I think if okay. something gets more than 90 on the Rotten Tomatoes review meter or whatever it is from, from reviewers, not regular people like not us, regular. you know, yeah. real real people, real reviewers, I'm probably going to like that movie. And if it gets below 60, I'm probably not going to like it. You, you can't see every movie. So I appreciate that those sorts of things exist. Well, that's interesting because I actually just in my head, I picked a movie that I assumed would not get a very high uh, score on Rotten Tomatoes, but which I but which I happen to like a lot. Even I'm, I'm a, But I'm also embarrassed to like it, if, the, if all that makes sense. It does. What's the movie? The movie, the movie is School of Rock uh, starring Jack Black. That got good reviews. So actually, it did get good reviews. Yeah, it's ninety-one percent on the tomato. Yeah, but it was only sixty-four percent in the audience. That's strange. Yeah. Um I thought that was a big crowd pleaser myself. I would have thought so too, but I think that maybe people have strong opinions about Jack Black. He might be a divisive character. Huh? I thought he was utterly charming in that movie. Well, I, so like, utterly I'm, like I'm telling you, I enjoyed the movie yes. a lot, oh, so but I'm it. also embarrassed oh, okay. about it. Right. I'm a little embarrassed only because there's some. The movie's got some. Serious flaws, but it's so entertaining and he's so great. I, how could you not like that movie? Well, yeah, I don't know. There are a lot of things that, uh, <laughs> yeah, there's like three types of things. Things that I like that I'm comfortable liking, things that I like and, well, no, I guess there's four categories, right? You can make, you could do this, uh, what is this when you got four quadrants there? You know, you got like a, you know what I mean? I've I've said what I need to about School of Rock, uh, Rob Nyer. So it, um, all that's required of me, of both of us. <laughs> Uh, to end the program, is for me to read the last segment that you wrote, uh, written by you. And you tell me where you wrote it. Okay, I'll try. You ready? Yep. It goes like this. Meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. I I'll keep going. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. Dot, dot, dot. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. Remember where you wrote that? Uh, that sounds more like Dickens than Nyer. <laughs> you might have to go back a little bit further. Oh, I don't know. The Bible? Yeah, that's, for, that's, the, that's the beginning of Ecclesiastes. Wow, really? Yeah. Huh, that was just a, I was just, that was a classic wild-ass guess. I can't believe I was right about that. Well, sometimes wild-ass guesses work, don't they? Also, I don't know any literature before between the Bible and Dickens. I that's guess, uh, wait, no, that's not true. Cervantes. Cervantes. I, I guess I've heard of him. Oh, did was... you read the, the one there with the no, guy? With Don... No, no. You didn't I, read I'm, you waiting, I'm waiting for the movie. Has there ever been a, a good movie of Don Quixote? No, but legendarily, who's the, the Monty Python, the American Python? You know what I'm talking about? Eric Idle. No, not American. John Cusack. <sighs> really? <laughs> Famous director, Fisher King. Uh, Eric Idle. <laughs> Ashley Peabottom. <laughs> anyway. Is that who it was? This movie Taylor director. Teagarden? This Terry movie Gilliam? director. Pardon? Terry Gilliam. Yes. Terry Gilliam began shooting a ver a Don Quixote about 15 years ago now. Mm -hmm. And the production was 
plagued by terrible weather and money issues and anyway they made a and Spaniards too. There's an outstanding docu yes, there's an outstanding documentary about that, which is probably better than the movie could possibly have been, no matter how good it was. Having said that, my understanding is that he's restarted the project and it's actually going to get made. So that could be good. All right. I believe you. But the documentary, What's the documentary called? Highly recommended. I don't remember. Look it up. People have the internet. Yeah, people have the internet. Look it up in Rotten Tomatoes. See how well it did it. Uh... I'll bet it got 100% of Rotten Tomatoes. 100. Hasn't he done... Because, uh, yeah, Terry Gilliam, Don Quixote, it was called The Man Who Killed Don Quixote. No, it was not. That's another movie by Terry Gilliam. That's the one... That's the actual movie that this hasn't been made yet. No. Did you find it? You're going to have to look at a filmography here. Was it uh, Time Bandits? No. No. That's all I got. I mean, I see some other examples, but I'm sure that this is not, they're not relevant. I'll, I'll I, get it. Yeah. Well, this says, oh, this says it came out in May in France. Yeah. The actual movie. Huh. Yeah. Well, Adam Driver, Jonathan Price. Interesting. Okay. Now I feel foolish that I didn't even know the movie came out. And apparently it wasn't very good because nobody saw, seemed to have seen it or like it. The, mo- the, the documentary is called Lost in La Mancha. Ah, yes. And that came out in 2002, the documentary. And, huh. Reception, Rotten Tomatoes. Oh, I was close. 94%. Lost in La Mancha? Yeah. That movie came out while I was working at Crystal Video in Missoula, Montana. Okay. Um, as an undergrad. And, uh, but I, didn't, I, never, I never, uh, never read it. Never watched it. Never saw it. Because uh, one, one of my many failings, Rob hmm. Nyer. Meanwhile, the actual movie that he wound up making got 60% on Rotten Tomatoes. So have done it. my prediction yeah. that the documentary would be better than the actual movie has been proved out by the aggregated reviews. Yeah. Thank, thank you very much. essentially has done it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, glad we got to that point. I wish I'd been so smart in my book. Hey, Rob Nyer, one thing you've done is to fulfill your obligation to Fangraphs Audio, if nothing else. Oh, good. Yeah. All right. So let me say this. Let me say uh, thank you, Rob Nyer. And you say, you know, you're welcome. Oh, I thought there was more. You're welcome. No. It's great to be here, finally. Yeah. And I, then I say, um, I, then I say that has been Rob Nyer, famous of the internet, but most recently famous of writing a word book. Do I get to say anything else, or is that it? No. Why? Do you have to? Do you want to add anything? Well, I just wanted to... Say, I don't know if there is a way to tell people how they can get the book or when they can get the book or if you're going to have oh, you information at yeah. your, web, your, your website or images or things like links and things. I don't know how that works. This is my first podcast, so I don't know how these things really go. Say whatever you, you feel like you'd want someone to know about it, and then uh, we could possibly include uh, some sort of promotional material in the posts. Oh, uh, okay. I don't know if they, people do that, but that, that would be really cool. Say well, Yeah, but say what you need to say. Oh, okay. So... Yeah. The book is called Powerball, yep. Anatomy of a Modern Baseball Game. Mm-hmm. And the official publication date, print, electronic, and audio, which, by the way, I recorded myself. So these dulcet tones people you've been hearing, you can hear mm-hmm. the whole book's worth of that. Just this. Just my voice. Is, that, uh, is it painful? Not to say that, apart from the quality of the book, is it painful at all reading all your same words over again? It, it's funny. It. It isn't painful because they're my own words. I, I think that I was able to be detached from that. I wasn't like reading it thinking, oh, that was, what crap? How did you write that? I mean, <laughs> that could have happened because I did write some crap, I'm sure, but it, it didn't happen. I think because I had to be so hyper-focused on reading the words without making any mistakes that it was hard to think about anything else, even my poor writing. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I, I would actually record for between four and five hours a day and that even the, the evenings after I read, I was completely wiped out. It was the physically, believe it or not, physically the hardest thing that I've ever done that didn't include climbing mountains. Did you ever entertain perhaps having uh, Sir David Attenborough read your book? I did. He was my first choice. Okay. But if we had done it that way, the publisher was going to pay him instead of me. Oh. Uh, so uh, I opted for me to get paid. Yeah, um, smart. Anyway... All those versions will be available on, officially available on October the 9th, a Tuesday. Okay. And um, sometimes those things pop up sooner in bookstores especially, but the 9th, it should be uh, widely, widely available. I will make every effort to publish 
uh, this edition of Fangraphs Audio before October 9th. That would be either either just before or just after would be greatly appreciated by myself and my publisher. Okay. Hey, thank you, Rob Nair. Thank you. It's been it's fun. Been Rob Nair, famous of the internet and also uh, most recently author of Powerball, an anatomy of a the nope. baseball. Nope. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio. <laughs>